Do you encourage your minister? Do you build him up? Do you express your appreciation for the way he serves? Are you grateful, manifestly grateful, for the grace that God has put in him, for the gifts that God has bestowed upon him, and for the way that he uses those for the glory and the honour of Christ? Now, I know of some people who would say that it's uh, not necessary or even positively wrong to encourage your minister, that uh, a minister will get too easily puffed up if you encourage them. Well, I I think in my experience personally and uh, fraternally, for every For every one minister you might find who is puffed up because he has been excessively and illegitimately encouraged, you'll find 19 or so who are cast down because, in part, they face very little or receive very little in the way of encouragement. Now, the sermon that we're considering today is called Encourage Your Minister. It was preached by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, not at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, where it normally was preached, but at Cornwall Road Chapel in Bayswater in London. It was delivered on a Sunday morning, the 18th of October in 1863, and the occasion of its preaching was the fact that James Archer Spurgeon, who is Spurgeon's brother in the flesh as well as in Christ, was the new minister at the Cornwall Road Chapel. And Spurgeon takes the opportunity to encourage God's people to encourage their minister. Now, if you're listening to the sermons and listening to this podcast, you'll know that we uh, try and have a representative sample of these sermons. This week, we're reading sermons 535 through to 541. And each week we take a featured sermon. And sometimes it's worth taking one of these uh, slight curveballs, something that, that uh, preaches is preached in a different place or involves a, a, a different uh, emphasis because it's still representative of the ministry of Spurgeon as a whole. And there's actually some lovely touches in this sermon, which I think are reflective of the affection that Spurgeon has for his brother. Now, Uh, That actually makes things a little bit tricky. This isn't one of his most well-ordered sermons. There's uh, not the immediate setting out of the skeleton of the sermon. It's a little bit harder to pick up the firstly, secondly, thirdlies of this sermon, as if Spurgeon's heart is bubbling over with natural as well as spiritual affection. So let's turn to it and let's see what we can make of it in the hopes that we too may be encouraged to encourage one another and especially to encourage our ministers properly, legitimately and blessedly. Now Spurgeon's text is Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 38. Encourage him is the phrase from the text. The text as a whole is Joshua the son of Nun who stands before you, he shall go in there, encourage him for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. So Moses is exhorted to encourage Joshua. This is necessary because of the work 
that he's going to do. And Spurgeon, in his introduction, points out that uh, Joshua, as, as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, then is a reminder to us that we need to flee to Jesus as the captain of our salvation. But he says, that's, if you like, the, the mystic truth. I want to confine myself to the moral on the surface. So here's Spurgeon again, and, and he's he's so good at doing this. He understands some of those different layers in any given text. Now, he's not giving us an allegorical meaning or whatever it may be, but he appreciates that there's a variety of sense here, that there's different ways, perhaps better, of applying this particular truth. And so he says, yes, we, we could speak about the, the, the Jesus who is prefigured in this Joshua, but I want to take it in this practical moral sense that lies on the surface, that Joshua was a young man in comparison with Moses, that he needed encouragement for the difficult enterprise of leading the people into the promised land. And so God commanded Moses to encourage Joshua. And Spurgeon is going to take the benefit of that, the example of that, the principle of that, and will exhort us that God, even our God, is graciously considerate of his servants and would have them well fitted for high enterprise with good courage. Now, why should God do this? Why should God so regard us? And he has a number of reasons. And really here he's arranging this thinking in a Trinitarian fashion. First of all, he is their father and we are his children. And he says, all mothers' loves, all the loves of friends, brothers, sisters, husbands, wives, if all piled together, would be a molehill compared with the towering mountain of the divine love which God the Father has toward his chosen people. And so the Father is concerned with regard to his own honour in all that his people do. And so he wants his people to be encouraged. How sweet the thought, he says, that if I fail, God fails. If I succeed being God's sent servant, God has all the honour. In other words, God has so bound himself to us that he will not let me fall, but that if he holds me up, the glory will be his for so holding me up. So God, as a father, is concerned in all that his people do with regard to the honour of his own name. But also the Son of God is concerned in the well-being of his brothers. He's bought them with his blood. He's passed through the very troubles to which he calls his people. And we are a part of Christ. Now, on all those bases, for all of those reasons, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be taken up with the welfare of his people. He is going to be concerned for them. They belong to him. They're redeemed by his blood. They are his and he knows what we pass through, and we now belong to him. We're united to him, so that when he challenges Saul of Tarsus, why do you persecute me? This is the reason then why Christ, the Son of God, would have his people encouraged. Even as God cared for Joshua, so Christ cares for you this morning, beloved member of the body of Christ. And he says that should be enough. The Father's interest and the Son's, but if not, remember the most blessed spirit. He dwells in all the people of God. It is his office to supply the wants of God's people. Again, 
everything that is in the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, his distinct relationships to God's people, his particular office or operations with regard to the saints of God. Do we now think that he will turn his back upon us? Do we imagine that the Holy Spirit will neglect his work? Oh, we can trembling believer, says the preacher. Do you imagine that God the Holy Ghost will be negligent of his sacred trust? No, he, he has this regard for us. He will go on undertaking all that he has promised to do. And if it's his business to work in you, strengthen you, illuminate you, comfort you, do you suppose that he has forgotten you? So God as God, Father, Son and Spirit, has this particular regard and concern for the well-being of his people. Spurgeon's language again, he is graciously considerate of his servants. He looks upon us with this particular regard. And he goes on to say then how far the tender consideration of God for his servants extends. So he sort of laid this Trinitarian basis, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, each in accordance with those uh, distinctions of personhood and the particular uh, roles and offices that they have, there is this Trinitarian concern. The persons are united in their regard for the, the people of God. Now, how far does that tender consideration extend? Well, he says, some people think it a small thing for a believer to be full of doubts and fears, but I don't think so. In fact, he says, I perceive from this text that my master would not have you entangled with fears. Why else would God say, encourage him? Then further, the Christian man must have his spirits sustained in order that he may glorify the Lord. Unless the spirits of God's people are sustained, says Spurgeon, they will dishonour their God, they will set a bad example, and Satan will be too much for us. He says, my experience teaches me that the cowardly old tempter always comes upon us when we are in our worst state. But just let the heart be right. Let the spirit be joyful in God, my saviour. The joy of the Lord then shall be your strength and no fiend of hell shall make headway against you. So God encourages us and exhorts others to encourage his people so that we may glorify the Lord. It's important to God. What a marvel. Think of that. What a marvel that God should have regard for the state of our hearts. And so he says, furthermore, labor then is light to a man of cheerful spirit. Success waits upon cheerfulness. The man who toils, rejoicing in his God, believing with all his heart, has success guaranteed. He who sows in hope shall reap in joy. That's why Joshua was uh, commanded with regard to him that he should be encouraged. This is a, a beautiful beginning. Uh, Spurgeon isn't getting, as it were, too close at this point to the uh, the particular uh, thrust of his sermon. He's laying this foundation in the, the love of the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the particular regard he has for his people. And it's, it's a good instance for us. It's a good illustration for us of how, having said that there's a a moral or practical emphasis that he wants to bring out, that that is not then to neglect these heavenly realities, these gospel underpinnings. 
This is not then a, a legal sermon as opposed to a gospel sermon. No, it all roots in the gospel. It all hangs upon the truth of God's gracious regard for his beloved people. And so he moves on. And having not really given us a firstly in the text, he definitely gives us a secondly. We remark then that God uses his own people to encourage one another. God wants his people to be encouraged. The means that God uses was his own people. He doesn't say to the angel, Gabriel, there's my servant Joshua, about to take the people into Canaan. You fly down and encourage him. No, says Spurgeon, striking. God never works needless miracles. If his purposes can be accomplished by ordinary means, he will certainly accomplish them without using miraculous energy. What a striking thought. Even as you hit it, you wonder, can you say that so absolutely? Of course, Spurgeon isn't saying that you know, God can't waste his energy, there's not enough of it. But his point is that Gabriel would not have been half so well fitted for the work as Moses. A brother's sympathy is more precious than an angel's embassy or ambassadorial function, going out as a sent messenger. Worth remembering that he's preaching with regard to his own, his own brother. He can enter in, says Spurgeon. Now, we could also go back to what he said about Christ and say that Christ himself knows what, what it is to, to be a, a man. And so he can encourage us to encourage because he knows how important that would be. But here, God is going to do this work by his own people. And now Spurgeon really begins to unpack the practical or moral aspects of this text. To whom then should this work of encouraging the people be committed? Who ought to be an encourager? And he gives us a number of different people, classes of people who ought to be involved in this encouragement. Surely the elders should do it, those of riper years than their fellows. I know some aged persons, he said, when, who whenever they see a young Christian, make it a point to inform him of all the difficulties and perils of the road. Like mistrust and timorous, they have always a doleful story to tell about the way to heaven. This was the old style of Christian in many of our churches. For my part, he says, I think that the aged Christian is better employed in looking after the lambs of the flock and trying to carry them in his bosom. Talk cheerily to the young and anxious inquirer. Lovingly try to remove stumbling blocks out of his way. When you find a spark of grace in the heart, kneel down and blow it into a flame. Leave the young believer to discover the roughness of the road by degrees. And so I would that every church had many of these aged brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers in Israel, who take this for their motto whenever they see a young Christian, encourage him. Now, if you're an older saint... Is that your appetite? Is that your desire? Has that been your habit? Do not let a word of peevishness out of your mouth, says Spurgeon, my aged brother. Let no syllable of complaining escape you, my sister. The younger believer, the one who needs encouragement, they will find out how hard the road is by themselves. You can help them when they hit the hard patch, the rocky patch, by being an encourager. Let your mouth be filled with your Lord's praise and with his honour all the day, and so you will encourage others. 
Now, remember again, at this point, Spurgeon isn't actually talking about encourage your minister. He's still using this in the more general sense. We are all to be encouragers of one another. And so he's, as it were, looping down from the, the great divine intent, now down into the, the practical applications with regard to the one another's before he gets to the most specific application. And in this way, he's preaching so that good is done to the whole congregation. So the elders should be encouragers. Now the wise in the family should be comforters as well as the aged. I could tell of men, he says, who carry their knowledge like a sword. They listen to the sermon and when they meet some friend who gained a little good from it, they will cavil, they will they'll back off and they'll, they'll cut fine distinctions. They say, ah, the first or the third point I did not think quite sound. They will be sure to have something to say that will knock the bread from the mouths of those who are willing to feed. They are more knowing than wise. And our congregations are often have people in there, they can tell you everything that's wrong with the sermon. They can tell you everything where it fell short. They can pick up every word that wasn't quite right, every uh, potential or actual inaccuracy uh, that the preacher was, was, was caught up, helped by the Spirit of God. Maybe he stumbled over one or two of his words and, and, and said something he didn't quite... Ah, yes, he made a mistake there, didn't he? Oh, how, how depressing that can be. Oh, says Spurgeon, you who've searched the scriptures through and know its promises, you that have been among these beds of spices and whose garments smell of frankincense, be sure to quote the promises of God to trembling hearts and especially to those engaged in arduous labour for the master. Comfort them. My friends, if you know your Bible that well, use it to build up. Let your words be apples of gold in settings of silver doesn't mean there's never any point in rebuke. There's never any need to identify a shortcoming. But let your, your wisdom demonstrate itself in lifting up and helping on rather than knocking down and pulling back. Now, the happier sort of Christian ought always to be engaged in comforting the mournful and sorrowing. There are some Christians who, in God's kindness, are spiritually cheerful. Wherever they go, he says, they carry lamps bright with animation, sunshine gleams in their faces, they live in the light of God's countenance. Others not so. They're more readily downcast, they see the black side of affairs. And says Spurgeon, if you've been blessed, either constitutionally or circumstantially, with that uh, uplifted spirit, speak a kind word. Find out those who are weary and give them a word of consolation. Even a smile from your face may do them good. Are we smiling Christians or are we perpetually sour? Not frivolous and foolish, but spiritually cheerful. Don't avoid those who are melancholy. Pursue them. Hunt them out. Don't let them be quiet in their nest of thorns, but if the Lord has given it to you to soar aloft into the clear blue ether, try to carry your friend with you and lift him above the clouds. Encourage the downcast. Now we might say as well, there's some wisdom in the Proverbs about how you do that because you could end up just rubbing salt into their wounds, but the instinct is the right one. Then let the brother of low degree be likewise encouraged by those who are rich among you. You may frequently breathe comfort into a desponding spirit by seasonable help. In the point in world history where we're living and, and perhaps in the society then where, where you are, there are people who are particularly struggling. 
uh, and, and you know them. Yes, there are poor in other places, but, but now we have people who are really wrestling on our very doorstep. Spurgeon says, don't overlook how quickly you can bless them with some practical assistance. Oh, if all the things, I he says, I've been counselling should be put into practice, what a vast amount of happiness would be created. Our churches would be more like families. I do not like people to come into a place of worship like so many icebergs floating out to sea and wishing to avoid each other, but I do like to see all distinctions broken down except the distinctions of superior grace, and those only observed because one brother has more has cast in more to the common treasury of the church of spiritual riches than another can do. I like those who fear the Lord to speak often to one another. We're getting into a bad state when they who fear the Lord speak often against one another. I believe that this one practice of encouraging each other might restore to the churches that holy fraternity and blessed love which once distinguished them. There's some important stuff to think about there with regard to the congregation to which you belong, because if you are a Christian, you ought to be a part of a faithful gospel church, and to the way that you think of and speak not just about but to believers who are in other churches. Are we encouragers? Do we draw back from one another, or do we draw near to one another in order to pour good things into each other? That if I've received then it's receiving in order that I might be a giver, that I might do good to others. And and it's it may be that there's somebody who's got very little for themselves and you've been given an abundance. Well, you give, you pour out. You, he says, oh, how many a good thing is strangled in a birth? How many a good enterprise dashed to pieces on the shoals before it gets out to sea? I may have mentioned this before, but... Uh, I, I remember as a, as a younger Christian coming up with a particular suggestion. Why, why, don't, we, why don't we do this? Why don't we try that? And uh, some rather melancholy uh, older saint said, oh, no, we did that before. We tried that 15 years ago and it'll never work. Oh, well, if everybody tells us that, I, you know, again, I think of a young Christian saying, oh, I've, I've set out to do this particular reading. And an older saint looking at him and saying sourly, oh, I can't imagine there's more than four or five men in the country who'd even begin to do something like that. Well, that's not going to lift the brother's spirit up, is it at all? And you overhear these kinds of things. Perhaps you've experienced these kinds of things. Let us be encouragers. Let us be true Barnabases. And then, says Spurgeon, we need to follow him, the object that is uppermost in my mind. So remember now how he's been uh, zeroing in on this, spiralling down, the, the, the circle's getting tighter and tighter. There's God's general regard for his people, which causes him to be concerned for their encouragement. Then there's the means that God uses, that God would have us to be the encouragers of one another and to enter in with, with sympathy and empathy into the experience that one another has and to use what we've been given for the blessing of others. But now particularly, he says, the object uppermost in my mind, his third point, it struck me some six weeks ago that I might say a few things to my brother's congregation which he might not like to say himself and that as this was a new enterprise, a freshly planted congregation, and I'm sure all our hearts anxiously desire it the very richest success, I might possibly take the liberty of saying a few things to you, the congregation clustering around this pulpit, which may be useful in the future of the church. 
Well, sometimes the visiting preacher can say a few things that the incumbent might not be able to speak with quite the same freedom. It's a, this is natural reticence with regard to certain things. And I'm hopeful that through what I'm doing with Spurgeon's sermon here, that I might say a few things that your own pastor might not say to you. And that you would be stirred up in the same way as I hope James Archer Spurgeon's congregation was stirred up to encourage your own minister. And Spurgeon says, and this is clever, I shall speak of my, my brother as a stranger, as I should speak of any other young man anxious to build up a church and glorify his master. Now, it's quite likely if someone knew Spurgeon was preaching, there's a, a bunch of other folks in that morning. So Spurgeon's giving enough breadth here for all of us to take something away with regard to our own ministers, the pastors that the Lord has put over us. I believe then, he says, that there is a special occasion for the exercise of this duty of encouraging one another in the case of the minister and church in this place. So he's still being specific. There's, there's, there's a need here, particular difficulties in this fresh enterprise and demanding special labour. And now he's getting into the nitty-gritty. Why should a minister need encouraging? We have plenty of troubles all the week long with our losses here and our crosses there. We want encouragement. Surely ministers don't. Spurgeon says, step into the pulpit for a moment and you'll learn the folly of what you've just said. If you'd like to exchange, if you'd like to come where I am and me to take your place... I would truly say that so far as the pleasure of my office is concerned, apart from the spiritual joy my Lord gives me, I would change places with a crossing sweeper or a man who breaks stones on the road. Let a man carry out the office of a Christian minister aright and he will never have any rest. Oh, that the weight of responsibility, that the burdens that are borne, the entering into the griefs and the sorrows and the joys of others, that the... the significance of preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, why a man would choose any profession or any work rather than the preacher's post. I've sometimes thought I must have a day or two of rest, but I frankly confess that rest is very little rest to me, for I think I hear the cries of perishing souls, the wailings of spirits going down to hell, who chide me thus, Preacher, can you rest? Minister, can you be silent? Ambassador of Jesus, can you cast aside the robes of your office? Up and to your work again. This is the weight. Uh, Spurgeon, in, in many ways, is, is a true evangelist. He says, I, I can never get away from the fact that there are souls who need to hear the gospel. He goes on again. Pray for the minister and encourage him. There are plenty to discourage him. There are always carping spirits abroad who will remind him of any fault. He'll be afflicted by those dastards who will not dare to sign their names to a letter but send it to him anonymously. And, and the, the brother to the anonymous letter writer is the complainer who says, oh, there are lots more people who feel like we do, but we're not going to tell you who they are. And then he says, there's the devil too, who the moment the man's got out of the pulpit will say, there's a poor sermon, you'll never dare to preach again. All sorts of discouragements. Christians backsliding, those who remain inconsistent, and the man will be sighing and crying in his closet, while you perhaps are thanking God that your souls have been fed under him. Don't read the whole experience of your minister by his demeanour in the pulpit 
on the Lord's day. A discouraged minister is a serious burden upon the congregation. When the fountain gets out of order, you cannot expect to find water at any of the taps. And if the minister be not right, if he's cast down, if he's broken-hearted for the wrong reasons, something like a steam engine in a great manufactory, everybody's loom, everybody's working machinery is idle when the motive power is out of order. There are many other things which may cause you expense, effort and time, but to encourage the minister is so easy, so simple a matter, that anyone might be able to do it. So how? How can you encourage your minister? How could I encourage a fellow pastor? Several practical suggestions. Very constant attendance. By the way, he says, looking around here, I think I know some of the people present who belong to neighbouring chapels. Remember we said that he's preaching with other people in mind as well? Now, this is what he says to them. What business have you got here? Why did you leave your own minister? If I see one come into my place from the congregation of another brother in the ministry, I would just like to give him a flea in his ear, such as he may never forget. What business have you to leave your minister? If everyone were to do so, how discouraged the poor man would be. Now there are some big cheese preachers and when they go to preach in a certain place, the congregation doubles or triples in size. Wouldn't it be wonderful if some of them spoke a bit more like Spurgeon? Why aren't you listening to the servant of God who loves you and cares for you individually and personally and closely? He says you're going from place to place. You're of no use to anybody. Maybe he's talking to some of us who who may scoot from uh, conference to conference listening to the same big names over and over. No, he says, the truly useful men are the servants of God in their places who keep to their own spot and let everybody see that whoever discourages the minister, they will not, for they appreciate his ministry. So if you'd encourage your minister, sit under his ministry, cheerfully, regularly, faithfully, eagerly. A second way, encourage the minister by being at the prayer meeting. You can always tell how a church is getting on by the prayer meetings. Says Spurgeon, if many come up to the house of God and they are earnest, the pastor will get a blessing from on high. It cannot but be, for God opens the windows of heaven to believing prayer. Then never fail to plead for your pastor in your closet, your private devotions. Oh, dear friends, when you mention a father's name and a child's name, let the minister's name come forth too. Give him a large share in your heart and both in private and public prayer, encourage him. Then encourage him not just by your attendance, not by presence at the prayer meeting, but also by letting him know if you've received any good. You might not be able to do it straight away. You might not want to do it in uh, spoken words. It might take a few days or a couple of weeks. You might send a text or a card. But tell your pastor how he has helped you, how he's pointed you to Christ, how he's shown you more of the glory of the Saviour, how he's uh, declared to you the glory and the majesty of the Most High. And then the best way to do it, will be by proposing to be united with the church in fellowship. Enter in to the life of that particular body. Show that this is what you know and this is where you want to be a part of and and this is where you want to be fed and this is where you want your soul to be established. It's a joy to see Christians being added to the congregation. How could ministers' hearts be kept from breaking if they never knew of any conversion? 
So make haste, do not put it off, delay not to keep God's commandments. Again, consistent living will encourage your minister. It will encourage and cheer the heart of the pastor to know that his converts are held in repute. And lastly, by earnestly aiding and abetting him in every good work. If there's something going on, if there's some new endeavour, if there's some worthy cause, if there's some particular investment, if there's some distinct work, oh, then get involved. If there's uh, some new uh, opportunity, if there's a, a day conference that the church is holding, if there's a meeting for the members or the friends of the congregation, make the effort, get involved. Don't be a church where it's only the scrag ends of the people who serve in the ways that need serving. Throw yourself in to the life of the congregation. Oh, he says, how my heart yearns after the success of this house of God, not only because the minister is my brother, but because he's a valiant soldier of Christ. I know his earnestness to do anything, he says, for the conversion of sinners, and if you do not encourage him, you will bring down upon your head every curse of those who reject the prophet of God, but encouraging him, entering to his labours, showing consistency in your lives, uniting with the church, letting him know if you've received a blessing, being present at the prayer meeting, being constantly in your place. If you will encourage him, you will see a church flocking around him which shall last long after our time, which shall be a perennial stream of benediction to ages yet unborn, until Christ himself shall come and consummate the kingdom by reigning himself in person among the sons of men. And his closing note, as so often, you cannot encourage anybody until you are born again yourselves. So come to Christ, come to God by Christ. Enter into the life of the congregation. That's the first and greatest encouragement that you can give, that when God is glorified, you will encourage your minister. Well, again, it's been a long and a rich sermon. I hope that out of this, you and I will go away with a fresh determination and a deeper awareness of the value of encouraging the hearts of our brothers and sisters more generally and those who minister the word to us particularly. And if no one else has ever said that to you before, then let Spurgeon tell you now to go and encourage your minister on the next Lord's Day or even now by a text or a note. Why not send a message, drop him an email, send him a, a, a text or a WhatsApp message or whatever it may be. Give him a call, write a card, speak to him after the service, seek him out, help him that he may glorify God and serve you cheerfully. And next week, God willing, Sermon 547, Suffering and Reigning with Jesus. Until then, may God not only encourage us, but teach us to be encouragers of others and to be encouraged by them in their proper place and turn. Amen. You have been listening to From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or write a review on your favourite podcast app. 